every Noguchi is a black hole wormhole that sucks you into its universe. And, you know, you kind of have to recalibrate your consciousness around it. That's what it's trying to do. I would say every, every Noguchi object wants to be a space and every Noguchi space wants to be understood mm. as an object. You know, he, he was uninterested in making things to plunk down into an existing mm. space to just be there. He wanted to make spaces that were sculptures themselves. They had the kind of um, the force of an object. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast that explores intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab, a creative research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. This podcast was produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. Today I'm speaking with Dakin Hart, Senior Curator at the Noguchi Museum in Long Island City, New York. Dakin, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I just mentioned your position at the Noguchi Museum, where you oversee exhibitions, collections, the catalogue raisonné, the archives, and the museum's public programming, which that's a lot. <laughs> it, is, it is a lot, but it, it's all integrated. That, that's why it makes sense, because the, the museum, which is really the Osama Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum, mm -hmm. is the home of everything Noguchi left when he died. Um, he had the wisdom and foresight to put everything in one place. Mm -hmm. So all of the work, all of the work product, the museum that he made, which we'll probably talk about, which is such an extraordinary yeah. thing. Yeah. And then his archives. And uh, whatever money he left, it was all all in one place. So it's it's all sort of uh, we're all rowing in the same direction, which is very fortunate because often that isn't the case. Um, yeah, and it, it, that inhibits the legacy of many artists and designers and creative people who would otherwise have a sort of more lasting imprint. Let's talk about Noguchi because this is, of course, Isamu Noguchi, the great late great Japanese American sculptor. Um, whose work and legacy and archives your museum preserves and also extends. One thing I thought about in preparing for this was all of the great artists that he knew and that he spent time with and that he even collaborated with over these eight, eight decades that he was working from these very well-known collaborations with Martha Graham, maybe less known collaborations with John Cage and Merce Cunningham, that Arshel Gorky was one of his great friends, that he was, even very early in his career, was an assistant to Brancusi in his studio in Paris, that he was both a friend and close collaborator and shared a lot of ideas with Japanese architects like Kenzo Tange and later Arata Isozaki. Um, 
He was, of course, very close and inspired by Buckminster Fuller, which I know is a relationship that you value a lot um, in your understanding of his work. And he also would hang out with Joseph Campbell. I was trying to imagine in the art world today what that looks like. Noguchi's social network was an artwork in and of itself. Um, the museum in 2010 did an exhibition called On Becoming an Artist, which mm. re really was about all of those relationships oh, um, cool. uh, and tracing them, even just a small percentage of them, because they're, they're almost endless. Um, Noguchi definitely in, in sort of the cultural and design fields has the Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation, but it's more like one or two degrees of separation from pretty much every creative person in the yeah. 20th century. You've now been at six or seven years at the museum? Almost eight. Almost eight. Yeah. Yeah, I think of you as having such a tremendous depth and breadth of knowledge about Noguchi, not only his artworks, but partly through his archive, partly through your own, you know, way of bringing things together, uh, just this, this very, um, you have this understanding of his way of thinking and his way of being in the world. And I really would like in this conversation today that you speak in part from that scholarly standpoint, but also from a speculative one in talking about and thinking through and wondering how Noguchi might have thought about, might have approached um, emerging technologies like AI and machine learning. It's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a, an amazing thing to spend this long, just focus on one person. Yeah. Brain. Yeah. Um, it's, it's awesome and totally wonderful, but having the chance to dive deep into one thing for so long mm. has been really um, fulfilling. And, um, you know, I would say that the thing about the museum that's so amazing with all of the different components that we have is that it is like an analog simulacrum of Noguchi's mind. Mm. And when you put things together, even just as we do in storage, um, he worked in so many different artistic genres, but also, you know, different methodologies and modes and media and um, with different kinds of people in different fields. When you put these things together, they're, they're like synapses, but they're Noguchi-like synapses because they're forming between heterogeneous things. Yeah. They're dissimilar. And it's amazing what happens when you put those dissimilar things together. Mm. Um, and, you, it, you know, we're, we never try to, we don't do fake Noguchi anything. But we do try to synthesize what he called his point of view or his perspective. He, he despised the idea of style and he just rejected it outright. He had no interest whatsoever in style, but he was deeply attached to his own point of view. And that's what his work is about. That's what the museum is about. And that's what we try to bring out mm. because he really was a conceptual artist. He was just uh, wrapped in the training and habits and techniques of a formalist. Sculpture kind of has two main trunks of its, of its uh, family tree in the 20th century, formal and conceptual. And um, Noguchi's subject really straddled both uh, from beginning to end. But um, the works themselves are often so refined, uh, so elegant, and so formally present that that sort of obscures that his principal work is a way of thinking and, a, and ultimately a way of, of being. Thank you.
I thought maybe it would be interesting to start with something he once said, which was, the future does not only belong to the futurists. What, a, what an amazing... <laughs> Yeah. So Noguchi had this incredible way of sidestepping stupid debates, like the the debate about art and design, whether something is one or the other or both or whatever. That's the kind of thing that drove Noguchi mm. crazy because it's just based on idiotic categorization, meaningless categorization. Um, primitivism is another one where his brain was just coming from a, outside the solar system. He just had a different way of thinking about it. From Noguchi's point of view, Something is primitive if it doesn't take advantage of the best available thinking and technology. Mm. So he would say a cycladic idol, for example, is still the height of technology because it still works. Yeah. Show a cycladic yeah. idol to, to anybody on any continent, yeah. anywhere, anytime yeah. over the past 3,000 years, and they'll be blown away by it. So that makes it absolutely apex technology. Mm. Whereas, say, like, um, you know, 10 years ago, the Ford Mustang was an unbelievably primitive machine because it still had an engine that had no fuel injection. It had straight axles without wishbone suspension, no anti-lock brakes. You know, you just go down the list of all mm -hmm. the things. That was a totally primitive yeah. thing. Yeah, interesting. Way more primitive than, you know, most of the African sculpture that's in the metropolitan, again, those things have been chosen because they're effective. They still work, mm. um, which makes them high technology, not primitive. So that's yeah. a kind of a typical Noguchi way of thinking about things. And he would extend that into the future. So his aim was to help us think about how to, well, just in this case, just thinking about technology, um, use the past as a way to make lasting innovation mm. as opposed to focusing on sort of piddly day-to-day -day irrelevant fad, right. which is mostly what we do. Most of the so-called technology right now, most of what Silicon Valley is engaged in is generating the next fad as opposed to making lasting contributions to the civilization of man on earth which is what Noguchi was actually interested well and the and also the i would just argue that the speed at which it's all happening i was talking in my last conversation with an artist who is now an engineer at a startup in silicon valley and just talking about the product cycles and how if you really want to do something different and that's not you know that's that you have an intuition about something or you feel, you know, have a strong creative impulse to something as an engineer, you have to argue for, well, this will take me half a day. Give me half a day to, to try to work this out as opposed to, you know, the time and space that might really be needed for that. And for sure. time is, speaking of time, is such an important part of Noguchi's work. And this, this technology piece or this piece about the future not being for the futurists or made only by belonging only to the futurist was his biographer, Dory Ashton explains in her book that it's really for him and his friends. It's not that they rejected technology. It's that they, or advances in technology, they just wanted to, they didn't necessarily see it as revolutionary. They wanted to see what its usefulness would be and what its, what its duration might be, as you said, but also that it had something to do with memory. 
Yeah, well, Noguchi is just really good at respecting other people and other across history, across human time. You know, we first of all, we're just a, barely even a blink in the history of the world. Yes. Um, but in our whatever hundred thousand year history or so as a species, we've been we were as smart hundred thousand years ago as we are today. We've layered on more information, so today we start you know at a higher plateau mm. in terms of with more resources to draw and more access to information. But we're we're as intelligent then as we were now. We're as interested in innovation then as we are now. Innovation just looked a little bit different. So Noguchi, Noguchi, everything's a continuum. You know, when I think about the way Noguchi worked, I always describe it as whip stitching because Noguchi is constantly whip stitching the past into the future. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of integration. He never met a new idea or new technology that he wasn't interested in. When the pneumatic chisel came along, he was psyched. Being a sculptor is very physically demanding. Your arms and hands get beaten up. So he always took advantage of available technology. But he also expected it to prove itself. He expected it to be more tr- worth more than it was uh, trouble. And uh, he was really good at, at not jumping to something. You know, he was not a fad-based person. Yeah. He wasn't interested in fads. Yeah, um, which when you're working on the timescale of stone, you don't really need to be interested in fads. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, the greatest uh, sculptor of stone in the world is water. Yeah. And, um, you know, and the thing about water is that it works really, really slowly. Noguchi really learned to carve basalt from the Uji River. Um, He pulled all of these rocks out of the Uji River. And when you look at the, the marks that it makes, the thing about water is it's working by its own passage by the fact that you have silts and things that are dissolved in it. So it has an abrasive and then it has nothing but time. So over the course of a million years, it can make a really, really sharp, really, really smooth edge. And Noguchi saw those and he, he wanted to imitate them. Yeah. Um, From his point of view, again, that's technology. That's nature employing uh, its own technology to Mm. achieve an incredible result. Yeah. Nature, um, I was interested in speaking with you about nature because I know that Noguchi was fascinated by the structures of nature, like his friend and collaborator, Buckminster Fuller. Um, I also wanted to speak with you about it because in one of my recent conversations here on the podcast with curator Stephanie Rosenthal, who's the director of Gropius Bau in Berlin, she said in discussing, in talking about new technologies, that she really has a strong sense that somehow the future of our technologies and the way artists collaborate with technologies has something to do with nature. And she couldn't exactly put her finger on it, but that was a sense that she had. And I can't say that I disagree. I totally agree with the premise that um, nature is at the center or should be at the center or will again at some point be at the center either because we choose uh, or because we end up having no choice uh, because we, we could be going backwards in a mm-hmm. pretty substantial way um, at the center of our thinking about technology. Um, you know, Noguchi's entire goal, really, uh, the mission of his idea of what sculpture should be. And I should say, too, that 
ultimately Noguchi's ultimate metaphor for his version of what sculpture should aspire to and should accomplish was the garden. Mm. That's it, which is, and, and not, one spe- well, is- not one specific kind of garden. I mean, a garden is just, um, is the sort of the, the, the most essentialized and microcosmic version of a place where nature and, and, and humanity are collaborating. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that it works. And he, I think he liked pretty much all the different ways that it works. People mistake him in many ways and stereotype him in many ways, both positively and negatively. He never, for example, really made a Japanese garden. Uh, people credit him with many Japanese gardens. He called them semi-Japanese or somewhat Japanese or kind of Japanese gardens. Um, everything in Noguchi is always hybrid. That's another you know, great notion and very, obviously it's a natural idea, the idea of hybridity, splicing. Um, Noguchi said, to be hybrid anticipates the future. Mm. And he, he meant it in a cultural sense. And you can read that in terms of gene splicing. You can read it in terms of uh, grafting one kind of branch of a tree onto a, the root of another kind of tree. Noguchi's not terribly judgmental. He, he set out to provide a model and, and alternative, alternative reference points, but he's not terribly judgmental. So from his point of view, we and everything that we've produced is natural. Yeah. So the most horrible things, the atomic bomb, which utterly changed his consciousness um, when the first atomic bomb was dropped. Um, you know, that is the, the absolute height of human ingenuity, right? That, was, that technology was created by the smartest people on the planet at the time. And then all of that ingenuity and innovation and um, creative human horsepower trained on pure mm-hmm. destruction you know, that, that, that's the nightmare, the ultimate nightmare for a Noguchi or even for a Bucky. Now, Bucky was uh, less cowed by it and, and plowed on and, you know, maintained his optimism. Noguchi, for a while, was quite um, disillusioned. Um, mm. He went from being a technological utopian to being, um, to looking for what one very elegant exhibition called a sort of return to earth which yeah. became a common thing with, with artists in the middle of the last century after World War II. The mission of the sculpture at the end of the day is to reconnect us to the universe and mm. specifically to this rock that we live on. He was maybe the first citizen of what Bucky called Spaceship Earth, very famously. Yes. Um, and he genuinely thought like a citizen of Spaceship Earth. And he wanted all of the rest of us to remember that we're all... Um, crew on this same rock floating around in a void at the very edge, by the way, of the known universe as it expands uh, infinitely in all directions as a big amorphous blob. Um, that perspective is what his work you know, ultimately tries to communicate in big ways and small ways. Um, it's just meant to reconnect you, plug you back into nature. Yeah. That's it. A theme for me in the Art Intelligence Project, as you know, and is what slow research, at Slow Research Lab we call not knowing. And I'd like to talk about that in the context of Noguchi's thinking and practice. Maybe to start with the fact that Noguchi was 
ascribed to the Japanese concepts of nothingness, right? Mu, the he, void. He liked nothingness enormously, for sure. He, yeah, and he, he really liked ignorance and the state of not knowing, which, of course, you know, every artist who lives long enough wants to be a kid again. And all they think about is how to recapture childlike innocence. Not knowing is not about a necessarily about a childlike kind of naivete, but, you know, he because I because he was Noguchi was um, he was really struggling with this I, with this. Um, I don't even know what you call it, a notion. It's not an idea. He was struggling with the void. He said, I've carried the concept of the void on my shoulders, right? It's this that's, inevitable, that's nice image, it's this it? inevitable question I cannot answer. And then he created, I guess, starting in the early 70s, correct me if I'm wrong, a series of several sculptural voids, and he referred to them as portals, right? Yeah. So these Gateways, were these doorways. Yeah. So these were these somehow the um he'd read a little too much carlos castaneda well that's cool <laughs> <laughs> it is it's great i didn't realize he was also reading carlos castaneda but that makes sense so there yeah. were these portals that happened through the void there were portals through matter um especially stone and so he really was yeah he really was very close to these these issues of a cosmic order or of an unknowable order, let's say, and For was sure. not afraid to, to actively, he was, there was kind of this active quest also in the way that he approached material and the way he approached space, you know, sculpting space. Every Noguchi is a black hole, wormhole mm -hmm. that sucks you into its universe. And you know, you kind of have to recalibrate your consciousness around it. That's what it's trying to do. I would say every every Noguchi object wants to be a space, and every Noguchi space wants to be understood mm. as an object. Um, you know, he he was uninterested in making things to plunk down into an existing mm. space to just be there. He wanted to make spaces that were sculptures themselves, which meant that you had to kind of understand them or step outside them. Uh, and and uh, observe them, uh, or that they had the kind of um, the force of an object, so uh, the presence of an object. It's interesting because he said that sculpture is a concentration of energies. So when he was yeah. saying that, oh, I think a lot of people probably have interpreted that as saying, okay, then this stone is kind of this container for energy. But he wasn't only talking about the stone or whatever material he worked with lots of different materials. He wasn't only talking about that object itself, like the these spaces that he designed within which often objects played a role also in and of themselves were these kind of containers for energy. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, kind of. I, I would, I think of, you use the word cosmic, which is great uh, for Noguchi. I always think of Noguchi in terms of celestial mechanics. So um, every object is, a, and he made lots of suns, lots of lots of suns, right. uh, none of which are spheres, by the way, and none of which even are really disks. They're almost all donuts. Um, mm. And the, I always interpret those as, as uh, sort of his version of a sun is the sun's sphere of influence. 
So obviously the sun is an amazing thing. You know, it's this huge engine, um, you know, enormously hot and, and lasting a really long time. It's like it's the ultimate energy generator. But what's really amazing about the sun is just how far the influence of its gravity and its other effects, uh, the kinds of energy that come out of it. Um, I mean, for example, giving us life, um, mm. the impact that that has. So I think I think of every Noguchi object as uh, creating its own orbits. You know, it, mm. it creates its own system, um, and it tries to get everything revolving around it in a system, um, and in in a more uh, sort of flexible, open garden-like space. Um, or, you know, another great metaphor that he used is the Italian piazza. So if you think about um, the way the piazza both influences and reflects uh, an Italian city-state, and the yes. two are kind of intertwined and synonymous, um, you can't pull them apart. But, but also it's, it's very cosmic because all of the most important um, mechanisms are invisible. Mm. You know, I, I have these talks like with my kids um, because they're very interested in whether um, things that they can't see exist or and are important. Um, obviously, we can't answer these questions. Yeah. But um, you know, when you for the first when you got a kid for the first time to think about everything that love can accomplish in the world, everything that it can make us do and not do for each other, to each other, um, for ourselves, to ourselves. Um, You know, there is no more powerful force in the universe, but how can, how do you prove it? Yeah. It's it's fantastic. Noguchi's sculpture gets you sort of straight to that same point, like of thinking about how it, how does it work? How does it function? How does it make me want to do this or that, or think this way or that way? Or if you think about that piazza metaphor again, what's amazing about a piazza is that it's both so contained and coherent as a thing, but also so penetrated, so open, mm. so connective. Yes. Right? They're, they're at the center of cities and they radiate out into the city. They're focal points of activity. I think that's what he means by concentration of energies. Mm. It's not like, a, you know, it sounds like in Noguchi is so easily sort pigeonholed or put into this um, like Kung Fu master horrible thing you know he's not he's not the buddha how did he see himself then i mean i get the sense that he saw himself as this intermediary between the human and the 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 earthbound and the cosmic or between being and nothingness i mean how and how did he see how did he see himself you know not just in terms of his his personality but the act of sculpting what was that what was that then doing was that was his action then making that portal between these different worlds possible yeah what what's so interesting about Noguchi and particularly looking at him as a, as a model because he he seems more relevant all the time to other artists and other creative people just because mm-hmm. what he represented has come to be this sort of archetype of what artists want to represent and how they want to function in our society. Mm. But he, he was an in-between person. You know, he, that's, that's his entire, it's his birthright. Um, you know, he's biracial and then by choice, multicultural. 
Um, he spent his whole life working the cracks between, as he said, you know, he never felt at home anywhere. So he made himself at home everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I really think of him as a, a creature of the in-between of the void. Um, Bucky had another great phrase that he used. And one of the other wonderful titles that he gave to Gucci uh, was free radical. Hmm. which is how he thought of himself. So hmm. he's he's not an electron in the orbit of any one particular molecule. He's a free radical, you know, this sort of vector zinging around between things. Yeah, He was a world traveler. He was a world citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, Bucky, in a wonderful 1960 essay, which you can find on uh, in our archives, Bucky, he said he thought in 1960 that Noguchi was the best traveled artist in the history of mankind, which in 1960 is possible because mm. Noguchi had been on the road nonstop for more than a decade. And Noguchi um, also was maybe didn't know, but had some very similar things to Louis Kahn in that respect, right? Yeah, the architect yeah. Louis Kahn, who also- They were collaborators. Yeah. Oh, they did collaborate. They, they spent six years trying to get a playground built on wow. the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Oh, that's Riverside right. Drive Riverside Drive, yes. Yeah, and, and Noguchi made a beautiful, beautiful memorial to Khan, um, which sits at the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, called Constellation, mm. which is just a very open group of basalt stones placed into an empty courtyard, which was a wonderful space. If you go to the Kimball, be sure to walk around the corner the outside yeah. of the building and go walk down into this sunken courtyard, which looks like something at Palenque um, and see what Noguchi did there. It's great. That's so cool. Well, it again, like just the way you describe it and his traveling, it also just brings me back to this question of technology and what you were saying about whether it's the Cycladic Idol or, or uh, a stupa in Indonesia um, <laughs> that these were, evergreen technologies that were continuing to <laughs> transmit so much, right? We have this idea that sort of this Western post-enlightenment way of thinking is sort of the most advanced form of knowledge and scientific knowledge. And then you go and look at sort of what, what certain indigenous peoples have known for millennia about the structures of nature and about, you know, they didn't need cell phones because they were, they could, they, they were communicating through the forest fine without it. There are just so many examples of things that serve some of us pretty well. Mm. But in doing that, serve all of us collectively really, really poorly. I mean, I think that's, it, in a way, the best definition, the best Noguchi definition mm. of primitive is technology that's actually impoverishing our existence. Any technology that actually impoverishes us um, in, in any one of the many metaphorical ways that you could take that should be out. You know, I talked about his disillusionment with, with uh, the dropping of the atomic bomb. Like for so many Americans, especially, the space program was the redemption of technology. Mm. Uh, because in many cases, it was the same people, it was the same thinkers who now were able to redirect um, the, those technologies that had gone to the production of the bomb and the war effort in general um, and redirected to something positive, which mm. is this planet-wide aspirational uh, movement out into space. Mm. Um, you know, so the, the, the space program came to really represent that. And I think 
you know, Noguchi loved the idea of going to outer space. And he also, for him, the greatest thing about it was the paradox that we spend all this time and effort and money, you know, trillion dollars it takes to get man to the moon. And as he joked, what do we bring back? What is there to bring back? <laughs> Rocks. That's it. Nothing is more Noguchi than that paradox. You've said that Noguchi saw technologies as inflection points. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Or what would be an example of that? In the early 30s, he proposed a monument to the plow. So early 30s, he was born in 1904. So he was late 20s, early or 30 or something. Like yeah, that. he was right around 30 yeah. when he conceived of this thing. And um, he actually proposed it to the WPA, which is great. <laughs> You know, Noguchi is is uh, Noguchi is nowhere near one of the original or like a proto land artist because human beings have been making land art from the yes. moment that we could stand upright and push rocks around. Um, but in the 20th century, Noguchi conceived of a whole bunch of things, which ended up being. Um, mm you know, influential in terms of the, the land art movement or, or unrecognized or not as recognized as they should be. So Monument to the Plow was meant to be a, a four-sided pyramid, 1,200 feet on a side at the base. Um, and it, would, it was going to be planted and then crop rotated. So, and then it would have a concrete pyramid at the tip with an enormous stainless steel ribbon uh, coming out of it, which was an abstraction of a plow of blade. The plow blade. The idea of the steel plow blade as a technological yeah. inflection point, um, and that it allowed this massive shift in terms of the agrarian, you can say, yeah. conquest. These of kind of in technologies as inflection points. Yeah. Noguchi wanted to reconnect us to more lasting things, more lasting technologies. And the best, by the way, the best proof that something will last is something that has lasted already. Yeah. You know, he, he likes things that had, had stood the test of time, that human beings, and he believed in, Noguchi talked about the true development of old traditions. Mm. You know, Noguchi went to, he, he developed a collection of West African, mostly West African furniture, mostly chairs, chairs and stools. And he was specifically, looking to steal technology uh, because great ideas have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, you know, there's, there's a particular kind of market stool that he was really interested in um, because they have round bottoms, you know, and so what, what lunatic would make a stool with a round bottom because you sit on it, you fall over, you try to stand on it, you fall over. And the point is some, if you're sitting at a market uh, stall all day long, day after day after day, and you want to keep moving, it's really, really nice. As he said, all you need in a seating apparatus is one point. Mm. Your legs provide the other two points. So if you have a one-point stool with a round bottom, it means your body always stays active. Mm. He loved that idea. Part of what's so great about Noguchi is just that he had a way also of escaping time, space, culture, and making yeah. things that feel universal 
and they continue to work. So, you know, why does the Noguchi coffee table still work today? Um, it's because there's just something about it that works in lots of different kinds of environments um, with lots of different expectations from the people uh, buying them and putting them in their homes or their sets or whatever. Um, and that's not a yeah. it's not a coincidence. You know, he worked his whole life to find again those in between spaces that would allow the things that he made to last. Yeah, and this idea of sort of transcending or somehow resisting or denying sort of parameters of time and space—it's not it, resisting them; it's embracing yeah. them. But it's embracing them in whole, in, in big whole. chunks, yeah, billion-year chunks. Scale. It's all about scale for him. He, he felt like we, we had, he said he thought that we had lost scale with nature. Everything in Noguchi is very micro macro. Mm. So he's always flipping back and forth constantly between micro and macro. And his sculptures do that too. So things on the cellular level, things at the, the molecular level, mm. the, those uh, natural structures of nature that he, he spent so much time talking mm. to Bucky about. But then also sort of how they relate to and how they're analogous to the cosmic structures um, and wanting to lace those two things together Mm. in our consciousness. Mm. I know you like to talk about this piece he made in 1968 called Another Land. Yeah. It was a slab of what, like not even two meters square kind of thing of stone, but then he also photographed it so that it looked really tiny and then photographed it so it looked like a massive landscape. He had a lot of different phrases for this. Um, One was spaces of the mind, Um, Mm. but another one that he borrowed from John Cage was imaginary landscapes. So um, Noguchi's work and Noguchi just as a person was incredibly um, invigorated by and open to imaginary landscapes of every conceivable description. Um, And what's nice about them is, or what keeps me buried in them as Mm. fully as I have been, is that they're not escapist. I mean, I like escapist fiction and movies as much as anybody, uh, you know, especially this in this past year. But Noguchi's imaginary landscapes are connected. They're rooted. They're purposeful. Mm. Um, they, they make you feel not like you want to escape reality, but that you want to get back to reality and dig in and plant trees and, mm. um, you know, improve your block. His imaginary landscapes are all actually better versions of this planet. You mentioned earlier, and we didn't talk about his playgrounds and these play spaces, which he was very interested in shaping space. We've been talking about that. Um, It feels like only recently there's been more attention given to his playgrounds. Higuchi thought of of playgrounds as he called them like a primer, they're primers of space. and uh, but but what's so I think why his his ideas are so compelling, why people have gotten so interested in them again, is that um, he again, it was his values that come out through the way that he made them. Um, he totally believed in something now sort of called non-directive play. Mm-hmm. So he, he thought that a playground should be like a forest. Um, a forest doesn't tell you what to do with it. You know, and a forest is an incredibly invigorating environment to be in. 
Um, and there are a lot of different things that you can do when you get to a forest, but it doesn't come with instructions. Mm. Nature doesn't have an operating manual like this is how to have fun in a forest. Um, but you can climb trees and you can, you know, play hide and seek and you can do, you know, all the things that you can do with everything that nature provides. That's why he, he likes the do... one-legged stool. Totally. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It doesn't tell you. It's like, it's a little bit of a puzzle, um, you know, and, and puzzles are great because they get the brain mm. going. And it turns out that most of the time, like you said something earlier that that is a uh, you didn't do this, but is a slippery slope to a place that is not at all Noguchi, which is like sort of the hyper-refined minimalist um, aesthetic. That's mm -hmm. not at all what Noguchi is about. Noguchi is yeah. make, all about making things that are so fundamental and so straightforward and so simple that they're multivalent. They can do a million different things. He liked basic building blocks of consciousness, awareness, mm -hmm. uh, what it takes to be uh, productively, civically human. Um, mm. And that's that's what all of his sculpture and his play spaces are after. Mm. So, you know, if you think of uh, the kind of play space that he would design is like a really good training ground for a good, healthy, connected person, you know, hopefully. Mm. And that seems pretty good to people. So there are a lot of, um, you know, theorists of play now and practitioners who are kind of going back to those fundamental Nucci values. He died in the late 80s. So yeah. this was before even the so-called World Wide Web, you know, was invented by Tim Berners-Lee. This was, this was, um, there were some pretty, as you say, pretty cool technologies out there like the plow, among other things. But something like artificial intelligence and machine learning and this whole premise, is that for him part of techne or could it be? And how would he, how would he have approached it? Or why do you think yeah, I, some of these engineers, some of these people who are who are who are programming the technology and writing the algorithms, like what could they learn from someone like Noguchi? Maybe that's a better question. Yeah, I mean, I think he he was incredibly open to technology um, of every description. He but he would have approached it for, through his values. Mm. Now, I mean, I think that's that's what we don't do enough of. Uh, you know, we're all seeing that now. There's a lot of national debate about that, that the so-called technology companies are not being held to account mm -hmm. for the values that are implicit in their systems, their programs, their mm -hmm. innovations, quote unquote. Um, you know, so I, I think, I mean, when artificial intelligence is such a fascinating, we don't understand the first thing about human intelligence. Mm. Um, I mean, I think AI is a way to understand human intelligence better. Noguchi is very good at getting you to let go of some of your your more idiotic um, presumptions, assumptions, working models. Um, mm. You know, and I, I definitely was raised and and uh, educated to associate um, language with intelligence. And certainly, there are some of us. I'm like I'm the Tristan Zara person. Uh, mm -hmm. To go back to that surrealist and futurist moment, um, Tristan Zara said, thought forms in the mouth. And I'm one of those people for whom thought forms in the mouth. Um, but there are lots of different kinds of intelligence. And Noguchi was incredibly open. You know, he would have said that anybody, anybody who does anything with the kind of self-awareness and purposefulness, no matter what the job is, he would have thought of as an artist. Mm -hmm. Again, not being at all interested in that label but just as a way to kind of contextualize a way of, of approaching something as opposed to the something itself. 
Mm. And I think that's how he would have approached artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, he just would have brought his alternative perspective on what matters to it. Um, and I, I think that would have, I think it would have been really interesting to implant somebody like Noguchi in a group of people thinking about artificial intelligence, yeah. because no doubt he would have offered them um, miniature wormholes around uh, blockades in our thinking about the way things do work or should work or, mm. you know, that's, that's what he was so good at. When you and I first talked about the project, you said, yeah, wouldn't it be, and in the context of this idea of not knowing, you said, yeah, wouldn't it be interesting to teach these machines that they don't have to know everything? Or I guess from Noguchi's perspective, it would be teaching them about the void or teaching them about um, the imagined, uh, you know, the imagination as filling in the empty space or... Um, that's my my dream that I and I think it's sort of a borrowed dream. I think Noguchi would think that this was a cool idea. Would be to be able to build an artificial intelligence that got to the point where it realized that maybe it was better off not knowing something, you know, or or realizing that that it could do what it believed it should do through its um, I don't want to say ignorance, but through its um, voidiness mm. as opposed to through a, a dense matrix of something um you know that that is that strikes me as an incredibly that'll be like the eight from my point of view that'll be the apex of artificial intelligence if we get to that point where uh, where a machine says what noguchi said when he was like 74 um he told an interviewer and then it became the headline of the article um i know nothing about anything and that's why i'm so free Thank you so much for this conversation. And it's so interesting to continue to think about how Noguchi would be operating in the world we're living in now, technologies or not, how he would have been thinking about or exposing or expressing all kinds of challenges that we're facing, but also all kinds of incredible potentialities. Thank you, Daikin. Thank been you. Really great speaking with you about this. This has been AI Murmurings, brought to you by the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, the Sia Furler Institute, and Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. You can follow the Art Intelligence Project at artintelligence.ai. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow Instagram and Twitter. It's at AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank Anton Van Inhengel, Director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, Tom Haidu, Director of the Sia Furler Institute, and Sebastian Tomczyk from the University of Adelaide. I'm Carolyn Strauss. 
Director of Slow Research Lab. 